everybody. Welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. It's the special COVID edition of the pod. That's right. After two and a half years dodging the bug, I finally succumbed and came down with the COVID. I'm now day nine. I'm feeling much better. I've watched a hell of a lot of movies <laughs> because what else is there to do when you're quarantined from your family for nine to 10 days? I'm your host, Jason Silo. I'm the president of Meeting House Productions. We produce this podcast. We also produce TV shows. We distribute content. We do a lot of other things. If you're new to the podcast, there is an episode just for you. It's episode 125. It's helpfully titled, If You're New to the Pod, Start Here. It's going to give you a roadmap to our 130 episodes and counting. The podcast dates back to October 2018. Do you remember that simpler time? Was it simpler? I was trying to think how I arrived at tonight's episode, uh, which is going to be about Brian De Palma's 1981 paranoia thriller, Blowout, starring John Travolta and frequent De Palma co-star and then-wife Nancy Allen. Travolta and Nancy Allen had also starred in De Palma's film Carrie, which, uh, which we did on the podcast with Lee Wilkoff, uh, which is a fantastic episode. I think we really talked about the love and the appreciation for that film. And that episode led me here indirectly. I think it started in quarantine with with getting to blow out because I had watched uh, a brilliant French classic film noir that I had on DVD for many, many months, which I had never gotten around to watching. And of course, what better time than quarantine? So I finally watched a film called Quai des Orfèvres, which is a horrible French accent I'm doing. I apologize. It's a film by Henri-Georges Clouseau, and it's a noir set in the world of show business, specifically the Follies era, French cabaret and burlesque show era. And it's set in a world of the people who make those shows work. And that got me thinking about movies about show people or movies about making movies. And eventually that has to lead you back to Blowout and Brian De Palma, who I have to say, it's really taken me this long in my film watching and going career to truly appreciate and understand Brian De Palma. As I said, Lee Wilkoff and I did Justice to Carry, I think, on a recent episode. And being able to really understand and appreciate what De Palma was doing with the camera in that film, what he was doing with the genre, with the fact that like his idol Hitchcock, he always knows that you know that you're watching a movie and he's interested in these layers of what passes for narrative and for truth, what we know as viewers, what the characters know, what each of those parties knows that maybe the other party doesn't know. All of that mixed with this very personal dollop I've come to learn of voyeurism and parental issues makes all of these De Palma films such a rich tapestry once I finally acquired enough cinematic knowledge and knowledge of De Palma to kind of bring them alive. Uh, because for me, previous to that, they had all just been really fun genre type films to watch. Not that I didn't love them, love some of them. But even a film like Carrie, you know, it really took until watching it this time with Lee and digging into the making of that I really learned a lot about De Palma. And there's a great documentary that I mentioned uh, about De Palma that was directed in part by Noah Baumbach. And that's where I really learned a lot of the backstory of De Palma. And that's what kind of opened up the door towards looking past all of the, the sleaze and uh, the sexual stuff and the violence against women stuff and all the stuff that De Palma sort of shorthanded known for. I, I decided to rewatch Blowout and I had the Criterion DVD, which is a great thing to have in a quarantine because it's got all the special features and you can really learn the ins and outs of how the film was made and the casting and all the great stories. I'm going to play you some sound ups from some of those materials. So I rewatched Blowout because 
It's about making movies. Also, it's a Philly noir. It's shot in a city that De Palma knew really well because he spent a lot of time there. He grew up there. He grew up in New Jersey. Um, And I watched it because it's got John Travolta, a bit player in Carrie, but here, just a few years later, transformed into one of the, if not the biggest stars in Hollywood. I saw Pauline Kael reference in her review of Blowout at the time that Blowout was the first time that Travolta played a fully formed adult on screen. And that's really interestingly true at this stage of his career, if you think about it, because in Carrie, he's playing a high school student. In Saturday Night Fever, he's playing basically a college-age man-child living at home uh, in Tony Bonero. In Greece, he's playing a high school student again. And in Urban Cowboy, he's playing another man-child and an angry young man in Bud Davis. But it's really not until Blowout that Travolta gets to play this really, for him and his career at that time, really different role. And I really, really dug into that and how good Travolta is, how physical he was as an actor. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit more, too. So a little background about the film Blowout. Interestingly, this connects to, I think, the most recent episode I did, which is Over the Edge, the seminal teen angst uh, um, Colorado high school drama, which was produced by George Lido. And George Lido also was Brian De Palma's producer at this time. And there's this whole fascinating backstory of George Lido, which I won't get into here. Um, I didn't get into it in Over the Edge, but he's an interesting character. And it ties into other aspects that we've done on the pod, like High Noon, because George Lido made part of his career through representing writers who had been blacklisted and couldn't find work. And so that's actually the interesting backstory to Over the Edge, which Rick and I didn't really get into because we didn't have time. But basically, uh, one of the writers of Over the Edge, his father had been a blacklisted writer. The director, uh, Jonathan Kaplan, his father was a blacklisted composer. And George Lido is tied into all these things. So anyway, in this full cast and crew cinematic universe that we're building here. George Lido, who produced Over the Edge in what, 78, 79? Um, well, then he produced Blowout. And as De Palma delivered the film, George Lido had gone from producing Blowout to being recruited by the company that was financing the film, uh, I think it was Filmways, to run the company. And And so De Palma says that, you know, while he was making this film and while he had turned in this cut and people were really down on the ending because it was a downer, his producer had become effectively the head of the studio. So that was a very helpful thing to De Palma. Now, De Palma, just prior to making Blowout, had just completed the film Dress to Kill, which I'm going to say oddly is a big hit for De Palma. It made $30 million dollars you know, in probably, I don't know, 80. And he was riding high and he had a bunch of different projects uh, that he was considering. And bizarrely enough, one of them was Flashdance. He flirted with Flashdance for quite a while. He was going to make Flashdance. Can you imagine Flashdance directed by Brian De Palma? <laughs> That's one of those things that you just wish we could have seen. Uh, anyway, he he really, he looked at Flashdance. He looked at a film called Act of Vengeance, which was then, I think, made into an HBO movie with Charles Bronson and Ellen Burstyn. And he had another script of his own that was sort of pointedly a smaller undertaking than something like Dress to Kill. And I think this outline of the story was similar to what would become a blowout. Another thing that he had been flirting with at the time, which I never, I never knew this before, was a film that I love, Sidney Lumet's Prince of the City. Those film rights at the time uh, that he, prior to making 
blowout. The film rights had been sold to Orion, which is the studio that De Palma was making his films at. And the film rights had been sold to Orion so that De Palma uh, could direct it. And, and I guess they were working on it for a while. And eventually it fell through and Prince of the City fell into Sidney Lumet's hands. And then he made the great, great film Prince of the City, which I think is, I actually think it's a better film than Serpico in the police corruption 1970s kind of genre. Um, I think it's a fantastic movie. I think Treat Williams is amazing. Uh, it's a great film. Uh, always worth revisiting. So anyway, here's De Palma and he's, he's, he's considering all these different things to do. And I can't remember exactly what he said about how he settled on doing blowout, but you know, it, it was personal to him in a lot of ways because he, he, he wanted to do a smaller film than the one he had just done. And it, this, and blowout wasn't intended to be um, what it ended up being with Travolta and Nancy Allen. In fact, he and his then wife, Nancy Allen had sort of pointedly said that they were not going to be uh, putting her in this film. I want to play a little bit of a, a great interview. There was never a plan for me to be in Blowout. Uh, in fact, I was absolutely certain, and Brian and I talked about that I wouldn't be in this movie. And um, as he was looking for the actor to play the lead role, um, it just happened one day that John called and said, oh, what are you working on? John and, Travolta. Uh, Brian told him, and he asked if he could read it. So... I said to Brian, well, what are you going to do if he likes it? Because he really wasn't on the list. It was a very different character in the original script. So John read the script, and I was uh, in Europe doing press for Dress to Kill. And uh, Brian and I spoke one day, and I, he said, well, John really wants to make the movie. I went, oh, okay, well, all right, well, that's great. And he said, uh, and he'd like to do it with you. I was really taken aback because, well, both of the roles, the way they were written, were really not right for either of us. So um, after I complained a little bit, I see, he said, so are you saying you don't want to do it? And I said, well, no, I really do want to do it. And I uh, was confident that we'd, we'd figure it out. So... You know, there, there's just a little bit of how these things come about, right? It's like literally John Travolta was knocking around a script of his own. He's at the height of his career. He's come off Saturday Night Fever. He's come off um, Grease. He's come off Urban Cowboy. And he's calling Brian for a little advice on the script. And then he, being John, says, hey, what are you working on? And John tells him this thing. And he 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 decides to read the script and he reads the script and then he wants to do it. And he and in doing so, transforms De Palma's little attempted movie with these two kind of bitter older characters is what Nancy Allen describes them as. I think she says that it's kind of more like a Jimmy Woods character, you know, down on his luck. And her character is sort of a much more grizzled prostitute who, you know, is wisecracking and uh, has been around a hundred blocks. So it really wasn't right for these two kind of fresh faced vibrant and alive young actors, but they changed the characterizations in order to make it do it. So in Blowout, Travolta plays Jack Terry, who's a sound engineer with this disastrous past where he worked for the cops in an anti-corruption unit in Philly. And his remote mic efforts ended up burning an undercover cop and getting the cop killed as a result. And that was actually a thing that I think he took from the uh, Prince of the City work, because I think there's a similar scene in Prince of the City where Treat Williams is is burned by a wire that he's wearing. And because he's getting burned, he goes into a bathroom, he removes the wire, and then he's like frisked for a wire. And because he took it off, he lives. So that came from the Prince of the City stuff. Anyway, Jack Terry is kind of working happily beneath his talents in the softcore porn and exploitation film industry in Philly at a place called the Independence Pictures Incorporated, which is kind of a Roger Corman-esque workplace that's, you know, nonetheless popular by people that are in their own way thrilled to be making any kind of movies. 
And watching Travolta, it's great to revisit his performance here because he gets to have these two really different gears, both of which he does really well. In the first part of the film, he's this really kind of diffident, uncaring guy who's knocking around and doesn't really have a care in the world because he's kind of turned off caring, it feels like. It's sort of like Tony Monero lost the accent, had some real world experiences, and isn't taking himself or any of this too seriously. And so you get this kind of fun, smiley, flirtatious Travolta. And it's, a, it, it, it's so fun to watch him do that stuff. And then, of course, as the film goes on, he changes. He becomes this angry, consumed, psychotic, you know, possessed figure who has this conspiracy in mind. And he does that really well, too. And, and he gets to make this, this big arc turn, uh, which is cool. One of the things that De Palma was inspired by in doing this film is that there was a period of his life where he, like many Americans, was obsessed with the Kennedy assassination. I think it's easy to forget now what a huge and transformative and massive thing that was. And our first kind of exposure to the possibility of these layered conspiracies, which now are kind of everyday stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post, this concept of a deep state or uh, corporations or criminal enterprises with their tentacles into government. You know, at the time that was, that was news to people. And, you know, there's thousands of books written about the Kennedy assassination. And De Palma talks in his interview on the Criterion disc about being obsessed with the uh, assassination and that the deeper he went, the, the more insane it got and the farther away he realized he was getting from the truth. And he tells an anecdote that there was one book that posited that while on the plane from Dallas, they surgically reversed the exit and entry runes on Kennedy's body so that it looked like the shot came from a specific way. And he's reading this and he just finally put the book down. He was like, okay, enough. So that's kind of where I think his impetus for the film came from. Now, in the making of features on the Criterion Edition, both Nancy Allen and De Palma reference how Travolta moves physically in this picture. And specifically, they cut to some scenes where he's in his audio editing room. And of course, it's not Saturday Night Fever. He's not dancing, but he moves in space so well. And De Palma talks about how that really matters. You don't think about that working with actors all the time. But when they know how to move, it just they move through the space of the the image that the camera is capturing in a certain way that it means something. It makes a difference to Palma says, and you can tell that in Travolta's performance. And so Jack Terry turns into the very thing he's trying to find, right? He becomes a murderer. He kills the John Lithgow psychotic character at the end. Spoiler alert. But for me, watching this movie, it's, it, this is the time that solidified something I never really would have thought of myself, which is that I am becoming a De Palma guy. I never thought that. I never thought, I, I always kind of, to be totally honest, I think I, I looked down a little bit. I thought they were just kind of trashy and sleazy films. And, and some of them are, perhaps. And what's fascinating also about De Palma is, in this documentary, and in the making of featurettes here, you know, he's had this arc of a career going back to the early 60s, going back to being a contemporary of all the guys like Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese. Um, he's had huge hits. He's made iconic films like his remake of Scarface, but he's also... You know, right now, if you look at his IMDb page, he's making films that are so beneath him because that's all I guess Hollywood will let him make. And so he is a guy who's rooted very much in the the 50s in the studio system of Hollywood in terms of a sensibility of what he grew up watching and appreciating. And obviously Hitchcock is his, is his idol. And he talks very brilliantly and eloquently 
about Hitchcock. In fact, I think a, a really good documentary could be made with just De Palma on Hitchcock because the sections in this interview that's on the Criterion disc where he's talking to Noah Baumbach about Hitchcock, I learned so much. I mean, it's fascinating to hear him talk about the things that Hitchcock is doing. And yet when De Palma's talking, he has this kind of world-weary tone. He has kind of a, he's no, he's no nonsense. There's no pretense. There's no bullshit. And it's almost like because he has either been full of shit at times or been accused of it so many times or that no one really appreciated all the time that he would put into thinking about the things that he put into these films, that it's given him this kind of interesting stance, which is, you know, he's not warm, but at the same time, he's so voluble and forthcoming and will answer questions in such an insightful and intelligent way that you really learn a lot about cinema from listening to him talk, uh, particularly in the De Palma documentary and in the featurettes here. Whenever you really need to know something, you find a way to do it in a way that's totally clear, but not distracting or doesn't take you out of the movie. You also do it in ways where it almost seems thrown away, but it's totally clear at the same time. Like when he jumps in the water and you see the figure on the bridge, but the first time you think you see somebody, but you make sure to go back to the wide again to see the guy going across the bridge. Exactly. Um, when you first started to make movies, was this something that, you know, as you got more experienced and by the time of Blowout, you've done this, you know, for, for a little while now, that you're, you know, I mean, you know exactly where everything should be in the frame and what, and what information you need to know when. Um, is this- Well, but, I, but you know, but no, I think this is the great disadvantage that we operate under that, that we lost because of the studio system. You know, if you listen, you know, read the whole, you know, chronological diary of, uh, of the making of Psycho, I mean, you know, you, you have a whole unit on a lot. And, you, you know, you go to the editor and he says, well, that's really great, but you really need a tighter shot here of the hand and that thing of the body going over the, uh, isn't exactly right. So you just call everybody back to the set and reshoot it. Right. When, when did we have those kind of freedoms where you could just go, I mean, when you think about Charlie Chapman, he just, I have to think about how to do this. How, how am I going to know it's the girl when she comes by, if she's blind? How is she going to know? How am I going to figure out she's blind? So let's take a month off while I think about this. <laughs> right. You know, you think, holy mackerel. I mean, it, it, well, this is a way of making movies that's like a dream. Yeah. You know, can you imagine being able to go back and think about, gee, how am I going to do that? That's not right. We'll just reshoot the whole thing. Uh, unbelievable. And so th that's, of course, you have a whole very uh, strict vision of how you storyboard, you look at it, you take photographs, but of course you're not going to get it all right mm -hmm. the first time. You're going to pick up things as you look at it in the other room. Gee, I need a shot of this or to make this really work. That happens all the time. Yeah. And we're, and we're just doomed to try to deal with material we've shot because, you know, you got eight weeks, that's it, goodbye. Right, and you only have the location for that day. Exactly so you, right. Yeah. Figure it out, pal. And the 2017 documentary, which is called De Palma, uh, was directed by, as I said, Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow. And, you know, this almost pained De Palma, who experiences the ups and the downs of the directing life. He's been hot, he's been not, he's been everything in between. It was really hearing about how his childhood informed his, uh, his POV of his films that really gave me an understanding to him that I just did not have before. And I think that's the first part of the, the kind of tumbling of the locks that fell into place to sort of making me a De Palma guy. And the second thing is, I think through really doing the pod, I finally watched enough movies to kind of have enough of a basis to understand De Palma's filmic references, even if I don't always understand what the references are when he then connects them to something like some of this French noir crime cinema that I'm talking about watching, I, I kind of, I can either make those connections intuitively or uh, I can, I can understand when he talks about it. So for example, in the Quai de Orfev film by Henri-Georges Clouseau, Clouseau says, you know, when you do a murder mystery, What's great about it for a filmmaker is you can make it about anything you want. You can attach whatever societal themes you want to this murder mystery because it follows these generally conventional story beats, but you can put 
other things on top of it. And in his film that I mentioned, you know, um, he's putting the things that he's putting on. And De Palma's doing that here. So in Blow, Blow Out, we have a movie about making movies, but we also have, I think I saw someone from AV Club write something brilliantly that said it was sort of a very cynically liberal take on society, on freedom, on government, on institutions. And I think that speaks to what I was talking about, something that De Balma had even, even at the time of making this film, which is this kind of jaded view askance at everything, you know, and, and that's what comes through in this film. And I think also it's why De Palma was so misunderstood uh, really throughout the majority of his career. And that's why it was people like Pauline Kael who got him. And when I read her review of Blowout, it's so prescient now. And it's so exactly the things that I was thinking when I was watching it that I realized that it took someone like her in his era to sort of understand what he was doing because there really weren't a lot of directors calling back to these things that he was calling back to. Either people were doing things so shockingly new and and creating new kind of cinematic languages in order to do so. And De Palma did that too, by the way, specifically with his use of the Steadicam, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he was really, like I said, he's grounded in this older mentality and and Hitchcock primarily. And so I think you have to watch a lot of movies to really get what De Palma is going for and to get beneath the surface smear of Vaseline on the lens and the porn pastiche and all the kind of the, the violence and, you know, to understand him and to understand where that's all coming from. And the third thing that kind of fell into place to make me a De Palma guy was that, you know, in doing this pod, I've had reason to revisit and in revisiting things in these films that kind of had eluded me until I kind of watch them now come out into the light. So I'm really also able to appreciate Travolta and Blowout because uh, in doing the pod, I've come to understand a lot about him as an actor, as an untrained actor in a way, as a physical body actor, not so much a mental head actor. Uh, I've got to screen a couple important Travolta performances and kind of put them in context and understand just what a phenomenally talented and totally unique actor he was and is. One of the greats. So in Blow Up, we have this 70s paranoia, paranoia thriller. It's of a piece with films like The Conversation by Coppola or uh, Alan Pacula's Paranoia Trilogy, Clute, All the President's Men, Parallax View. But as I said, it's also a Philly noir, which is such a unique and distinct thing from those other films. And he's using locations in this that he knew really well. And I think that comes through. And he's also using the kind of freedom and Americana iconography of Philadelphia to really droll and deadpan effect. There are so many shots where Ben Franklin is looking on unamused from a mural on the side of a building at all the signs of crazy things that are being done in the name and under the protections of the freedom that he uh, helped us to achieve. And I like, too, that Blowout is also very nearly what we would call in the Columbo Cinematic Universe a how catch him. The twist being here that, you know, in Columbo, we see the murderer, we see the murder, and then we watch Columbo try to to corner the murderer that we know did it. Now, the twist in Blowout is that we do see the crime, and careful viewers are going to note that there's a mysterious figure loitering under the Wissahickon Bridge as the car goes through the guardrails and plunges into the water. So we know that something has happened, but at first we don't really know what. And it's only with the introduction of the Lithgow character that we kind of learn that there's this conspiracy. But fundamentally, Blowout is just about filmmaking, and it has so many meta layers in that regard that to name just a few of them, you quickly start making this long list. It's about partially the fetishization of filmmaking equipment, a love for these period knobs and dials and and the fonts on recording devices, the tape running through sprockets and reels, the sounds of rewinding and fast forwarding, like the tactile stuff of filmmaking and the equipment used to make films is, is a lot of what this film is about. And then in an incredible sequence, which I just watched a few times because it's so, so brilliant, uh, Travolta's character actually reduces 
the cinema of the time to the most basic building blocks because there's a there's a, a conspiracy magazine that has you know frame by frame still photographs of the crash he cuts them out with scissors he photographs them on a stand and then he sinks that film that he's created and that's all that film is right is a series of still photographs played in succession to trick the eye which is also part of what blowout is about in a fascinating way which is you know you're not seeing reality when you're watching a film obviously you're watching a fictional construct but you're not seeing the thing you think you're seeing you're not seeing actual movement captured in a way you're seeing 60 frames per second or 24 frames per second or whatever it happens to be so travolta's character makes a movie he he films individual stills and he he syncs that to the audio that he recorded and now your mind starts going okay so a real director brian de palma is making a fictional movie in which a fictional director is making a film in order to learn the truth behind something he was present for but that's not available to him without a film to bring what he thinks he must have seen to light are you dizzy yet because that's where <laughs> that's where things start to go and, and then on top of that de palma also adds a reenactment so when travolta is telling nancy allen's character in the bar about what happened to him when he was working for the police department and how the cop was killed we see the story that he's telling her like it's filmed and that's such an interesting thing to plop down in the middle of this film about filmmaking because now Travolta's not just telling her the story, we are seeing it. And in seeing it, we're seeing Travolta be a little different than he is now because this predates where we are in the film when we meet him. These are the fun these are the foundational building blocks of how the character ended up as he ended up. And so it doubles back on itself and it plays us this, this thing, which could only happen in a movie, which is this reenactment, this flashback. And in seeing the reenactment in the flashback, we're privy to things that the characters aren't. And I think that's what really excites De Palma in cinema, which is that things are possible there that are not possible in real life. And an example of that is how he uses the Steadicam. Uh, now, just a brief diversion into Steadicam, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, Garrett Brown has a featurette on the Blowout DVD where he talks about inventing the Steadicam. He talks about working on uh, The Shining with Stanley Kubrick, which is the film that he worked on just prior to doing Blowout. Probably the th three most iconic Steadicam shot examples that you're familiar with would be Rocky, where the training montage and Rocky's run up the stairs utilizes the Steadicam. Obviously, The Shining, if you think of Danny pedaling through the Overlook Hotel on his tricycle before the evil twins appear, that's Steadicam. And of course, Goodfellas, the famous shot tracking all the way through the kitchen as Henry Hill arrives at the Copa and greases palms, that's Steadicam. Now, Garrett Brown, if you watch NFL football, he also invented the Skycam. So this guy has contributed invaluably to both the language of cinema and the language of how professional sports are, are photographed and brought to us. And he's a really voluble, knowledgeable dynamic presence in these criterion extras. And he's talking about Steadicam and its use in blowout. And he talks a lot about how uh, he had worked on The Shining just prior to this and, you know, Kubrick being so, so famous for so many takes. I want to play a little bit of Garrett Brown talking about sort of working on this film with De Palma. It's, it's interesting stuff to hear him talk about sort of how the Steadicam contributes something that I wasn't really thinking of. I had just actually come back from shooting The Shining for Kubrick and was extremely well-practiced, you might say, because Stanley does a lot of takes. So I was in good form for uh, Brian and Blowout. And um, I was asked to do something that I never did on The Shining, which is a point of view. 
He's playing the he, he's playing the very famous beginning of of blowout, which is the aforementioned walking and running and moving like a long shot at like a girl's dormitory college. With one exception, the weird thing is that you can't you can't walk. We walk like this, right? But we're not conscious of it. We're not. Uh, we don't. He's sort of showing how the body moves left to right while walking. Picture our walking. It's smooth, right? Uh, and so you have to restrain yourself from being too accurate when you do a point of view. Okay. See, that's fascinating to me right there, because what he's saying is that the Steadicam can mimic your movements to such a degree because you're wearing it that you actually have to actively work against what your body normally would do in order to create a fictional film version of reality. And again, this is what's fascinating to De Palma and it's becoming fascinating to me, which is this language of cinema stuff and how the Steadicam changed fundamentally what we were able to see in a movie and how that fundamentally changed how we were presented with information in the film. Here's a little bit more of Garrett Brown. The camera is acting like the person, right? Uh, up to a point, you know, not some of our, you know, knee-jerk kind of unconscious moves, but the camera kind of acts consciously like a person. So I was excited. I wanted to do a great point of view. I was obviously aware of the shot in Halloween. Um, you know, it was it was groundbreaking. It was fun from my point of view. Fresh off Kubrick, it was not that well executed. It was, it did a lot of this, which humans don't do. You know, have you noticed that? Unless you've been at the bar too long. He's talking know, about how the famous shot in, in Halloween so swayed back and forth to lend sort of a, I, I guess, insanity really to it. Felt like a true human, and we had all the fun stuff. You know, hands entering with knives and hands opening doors and opening showers and so on. And when I got on the set, I was extremely disappointed to find out that I wasn't doing a good one. I was doing a parody of Halloween. I was doing a, a crappy horror film. You know, it's not easy to be bad, after, particularly after Kubrick. So every part of it went against the grain for me. Every and he's talking about the fact that Blowout starts with, for a first-time viewer, you, you think that's the movie. You think this is the Brian De Palma movie I've, I've signed up for. There's naked girls, there's sex, there's masturbation, there's murder, there's voyeurism. But it's, of course, just a parody. And then the film pulls back and we see that the Travolta character is working in a sound studio and working on a bad exploitation film. Every aspect of it, having to be too obviously out, you know, where people could have seen me, you know. Moving like clumsily as if I was, you know, every footstep showing, you know. I'd love to go back and redo that as if it wasn't a, uh, a crappy horror movie. And that was the surprise, of course, for the audience that what started looking like something not quite impressive suddenly turned out to be deliberately unimpressive. But I got there, and um, De Palma had clearly thought out what he wanted. There was no arguing about bad versus good. I mean, I was to be this, you know, parody. Um, and every aspect of it, in my memory, was pretty well planned. Um, so, you know, just... Garrett Brown is really good in this. Um, and if you, if you get this DVD, I encourage you to watch it. Um, and like I said, De Palma talks also so knowledgeably about what uh this gets a little meta but it's it is very intrinsic to the uniqueness of how de palma tells stories uh here, here's a little of him talking about the city cam you have to think about what is something when you're dealing in a certain medium what is the thing that is best done in that form i mean obviously if you're directing a play on stage dialogue character is paramount because the because the you're sitting in the you know audience looking and you have to choreograph the people on stage from basically an audience's point of view when you're make when 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 you're making a movie you have all kinds of of, of things that you can explore and what hitchcock discovered well which well first is the point of view shot which is you know the idea of somebody walking are looking and then you showing what they see and you and the audience member identifies with 
the character, whether it be Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant or whoever, whoever it might be, Janet Leigh, and what they are seeing. And this is how we experience life through points of view shots, which, uh, as we talked about once before, in computer games, which are old, sometimes old point of view shots, where you really go through the space and explore it from your point of view. So, and what's unique to cinema, unlike any other art form, is that you can show the audience and your character the same piece of information. They see what the character's saying. So you digest that point of view. It's, it's, it's unique to cinema. I think that's so fascinating. And again, once you start watching a lot of movies and you start understanding the cinematic language of how camera movements work, and De Palma goes on here to talk about the fact, well, actually it's Garrett Brown in his interview talks about the fact that previous to the Steadicam, if you wanted the camera to move fluidly, you had to put it on a dolly, which is a, essentially a railroad track. And you have to, as a result, you're largely confined to kind of straight in and back or linear left-right movements. Uh, you could have some curve in movement if you laid the track that way, but it's very complicated to do and very complicated to operate. But all of a sudden, with this invention of the Steadicam, all of that is gone. All of, all of that kind of restriction to the way a camera crane moves or a dolly moves, a pan, a tilt, all these mechanical moves that were bound in some way by the construction of the devices that allowed them to happen. Well, with the Steadicam now, that's all gone. And so there's this amazing shot in Blowout of the night market in Philadelphia. And it's where we're first introduced to the Lithgow character. He's following her through the night market. And again, when De Palma talks in that little snippet about figuring out what the best thing to do is based on the medium that you're working in, that's such a clear example. A lot of times De Palma, I think, got a lot of stick for sort of doing things for the sake of doing them. And maybe that is the case in some of his films, but I think Blowout is almost his best and most tightly constructed film that uses all of this stuff really when it's meant to be used. So he uses it here when Lithgow is following Nancy Allen through the night market. And he's also using the split diopter, which we talked about in the carry episode where you have uh, something in focus in the foreground on the, on one side of the screen and you have something in focus in the far background on the other side of the screen. And he's using lenses and and uh, focal breakpoints in the middle of the screen in order to do that. He does that in this scene where you see a dead fish and an ice pick and the, the, the unseen killer's hand enters and takes the ice pick and that's what he's going to use to try to, to kill the Nancy Allen character. So he's using this stuff in order to facilitate the telling of his story in a way that I think is really fascinating. So a lot of things Hitchcock discovered, which I talk about the grammar of cinema, this is one of the basic building blocks. You know, you'll always notice Hitchcock when somebody's walking up, like going up to the, you know, the, the creepy house on the hill in Psycho, you know, he's tracking, looking at the house, tracking, looking at the house, you know, puts you in the character's head. Um, instead of objectifying it, you know, getting, seeing the character walk up to the house. And Vertigo is an example where you follow a character and because this is a process of getting to know the character purely visually, you I mean the whole following of Kim Novak in the beginning of the movie is he's got some ideas that the husband is stuck in his head and he's basically observing what she's doing. But of course, what we find out later, she is acting. She is presenting a performance for him to digest as a suicidal person, success from somebody that's dead that's gonna kill themselves eventually. What's great about it is that what we do as directors is we create these illusions, which are many times actresses. And in the process of vertigo is he creates this vision of this girl makes you fall in love with it, and then destroys it and devastates you. And he shows you how he does it. And then what he does is he puts her makeup on and makes her the Kim Novak that we followed in that dream. He creates that illusion, which is... So again, these are all just things that you can go down the wormhole of, as I did. And none of this gets in the way, I think, of appreciating a film like Blowout, which you don't have to have all the stuff in your head to watch, but when you do know what's going on, it's all the more fascinating.
And Lithgow is so good, <laughs> I have to say. I think De Palma is the guy who invented the concept of Lithgow as a bad guy, which is such a huge part of his career now. Like the nicest guy in the world being the most convincing bad guy. Uh, Lithgow is so good in this. And it's another kind of meta performance because, again, we're watching this film uh, the film Blowout, directed by bon- Brian De Palma. And in the film, John Lithgow is playing this killer. But true to all the things that go on in the movie, he's also playing a role. The, ki- the killer in the film is portraying a sadistic, psychopathic serial killer on the phone on his calls to the police because he's trying to cover up the fact that when Nancy Allen is killed, it's connected to the death of the senator who was going to win the presidential nomination and who had to be assassinated as a result. So he creates this idea for the police that there's this maniac serial killer on the loose by purposely killing a couple uh, prostitutes so that when he kills, you know, the third one, which is the Nancy Allen one, it won't stick out like a sore thumb. So again, he's, he's again playing with this, this idea of the roles that we play and everyone in the film is acting or portraying a different role. So I want to talk a little bit about Travolta again. Again, as I mentioned, Carrie was 76. Saturday Night Fever was 1977. Grease was 1978. Urban Cowboy was 1980. And then Blowout. Now, over that arc, from 76 to 80, he is now a huge star. And one of the great things uh, that I loved about Blowout was that Travolta gets to use a lot of his humor in the first part of the film. I wanted to play a little of this scene, which is where he's kind of jawing and jiving with the director of the low-budget exploitation film that we were watching. And just just listen for Travolta's comic chops here, because they're so good. Uh, with those tits, who's going to be watching your screen. Listen, we're on. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Come on, Jake. Look, how many years have we worked together? Let's see. I met you on uh, Bloodbath, right? Yeah. And then we did Bloodbath 2. And then we did uh, Bad Day at Blood Beach. And then we did Bordello of Blood. And then, uh, well, that brings us up to date. Co-ed Frenzy. By the way, I didn't tell you this, but uh, I'd like to think this is our finest film. Almost two years. Oh, God, two years. Five films in two years. How do we do you, you know what I can't figure out? I can't figure out what a smart guy like you is still doing that shit for. Oh, come on. You do this shit. I do the sound. Come oh, no, on. you do the shit. Oh, is that yeah, right? Yeah, like that wind in the trees. It sounds like you're whistling in the crap. That's the library stuff. We used it a million times. That is the trouble. I have heard it a million times. Now, get something new. New wind. Yeah, got it. I, again, Travolta's comic chops are so good. And you got to see his physicality in this scene, the way he's... Uh, taking seriously the counting down of all the terrible films they've made together. It's so funny. He's so good. And Nancy Allen too. You know, it's funny. You watch Nancy Allen on these featurettes. She's such a self-possessed, well-spoken, obviously intelligent uh, survivor of Hollywood, you know, and she exudes this quality that if you're looking for a pro actor, uh, the way she comes across in these featurettes, I would hire Nancy Allen in a heartbeat because It just, again, like De Palma, she's been through all of this stuff in Hollywood over 50 years and and has survived it, which is its own accomplishment. Another thing that's interesting about Blowout is the use of color. Um, There's, it's, again, this palette. This is stuff that De Palma has obviously thought about. We're, We're in Philadelphia. We're talking, it's this Independence Day celebration that he's created. So there's a lot of red, white, and blue. Blue, to me, seems to be used in the film to indicate truth or a truthful person or a person seeking the truth. Travolta's car is blue. Nancy Allen's phone is blue. There's a reporter who wants to broadcast the truth. He wants to broadcast Travolta's film. He's wearing a blue shirt. Uh, When Nancy and Travolta meet at a motel, the walls are red, white, and blue. So there's a lot of use of color to signify things. And I think that ties in Uh, with Blow Up, which I'll talk about in a second, the classic 1960s Antonioni film, uh, which this is very, very much influenced by and which De Palma talks about. 
Red is kind of a color used a lot around Lithgow's character, uh, around Dennis Franz's character. These are people who are engaged in an aspect of this cover-up in one way or another. One other thing I thought was really funny. You know what I miss about not films not being made in the 70s or 80s anymore? Characters having to dial rotary phones. More specifically, actors having to act as characters who have to dial rotary pay phones or home phones. Think about in the history of all the movies, all the time someone had to do that seven number dialing thing. I'm so fascinated by that. I wish I had a supercut of like all 70s actors dialing telephones. I wonder if they had to develop a little thing. Did they do what I would probably do, which is like dial a number that I knew? Um, can you make it believable? Is there a way to plausibly dial a phone and have it look believable? Is there a way to implausibly dial a phone and have it look not believable? I love all this stuff. And I love any of these 70s films where I get to watch characters take the time to dial rotary phones. That's a special thing. Um, now, famously, the movie didn't do well when it came out, which is kind of bizarre because it's become a classic. It's probably become, I don't know how many other De Palma films are in the Criterion collection, uh, but this certainly is. And it, um, his previous film made about $30 million, which is pretty good for the era. And Blowout made only $13 million. So anytime you're follow-up film makes less than half your previous film, well, then you're going to kind of go into a rut a little bit in the words of, uh, of Hollywood. So this was a big letdown for De Palma. It did not do well critically, except, as I mentioned, uh, with Pauline Kael. And it really took time for the film to be appreciated and now be kind of held up as this classic. Uh, however, two important guys did get the movie. Move ahead with it. Let's go, Sal. Yeah, and then they have those transits. Here's a little bit of. Siskel and Ebert. John Lithgow, just terrific as the bad guy in this film. This is a different kind of role for John Travolta, too. He's not playing a teenager here as he did in Greece or Saturday Night Fever. He does a believable job of unraveling the mystery and involving us along with him. Blowout is a good, tense thriller and also a fairly serious consideration, I think, of the political dirty tricks game and of our national nightmares of political assassination. That's why I really like Blowout. It's much more than a thriller. Total agreement. I think this is Brian De Palma's best picture. I think it's one of the best pictures of the year. I liked it for three reasons. I think you probably share them. It works as a thriller. Mm -hmm. It works as a consideration of political conspiracy. So. It really does give us a feeling behind the Watergate mentality. Gee, we've committed a little crime. We have to commit much bigger crimes to cover that up. The third thing that I really like, this is something De Palma doesn't always do, he made the characters in this movie very believable as human beings. Even though they're involved in this really labyrinthine conspiracy, most of their actions are things that I think most people would do if they were in the same situation. I never felt the characters were doing things only because the plot required them to. You're saying that De Palma's film has a lot more humanity than some of his others, which have been a lot of shock shows. I uh -huh. think that there's uh -huh. a final scene, I won't say what it is, there's a final mm -hmm. shot in this movie that I think is one of the saddest scenes mm -hmm. that I've really can ever see, done by Travolta. It's, I think it, the film does step up in its class mm -hmm. from just a mere thriller. And I think that there's a, a real return to the movies of the early 70s, American films, thinking about what's going on in the country. And mm -hmm. I like that about this mm -hmm. picture. I cared about these characters and the job of telling the truth that they were mm -hmm. trying to do in this film. It got to me. I think that last shot with Travolta, the reason it, it strikes us so deeply and really affects us is that it's a tribute to Travolta's performance throughout the whole film. We really care about this guy. He's not simply a pawn in a thriller. Couldn't agree more. And what a great treat it is to revisit an era where you could watch a TV show where two people could talk about movies that intelligently but also that mass market way, like it's for going to the movies, right? It's not about like sitting around talking about like Eisenstein and Potemkin. It's talking about movies that were in wide release, but it's talking about it intelligently. And now you're stuck with places like this podcast and my lack of intelligence. I want to talk a little about some of the films that this connects to. I mentioned Blow Up, which is the Michelangelo Antonioni film, what year was Blow Up? This is uh, 1966. This is such a, a, a massively influential looking film. It was Antonioni's first English language film. 
And it starred David Hemmings, who was sort of the it boy of swinging London and has such a very specific look. Obviously, this came first. This is 1966. And in it, he's this kind of louche, oversexed, jaded, diffident, playboy fashion photographer who comes to believe that while voyeuristically, speaking of De Palma, photographing a couple in a park, he comes to believe that he has captured evidence of a murder. And he blows up his photographs in into it, f- focusing on smaller and smaller segments and blowing them up larger and larger. And of course, as he blows them up, they become less and less legible. So this film is hugely influential. It's very different. It's very European. It's very, I'm not going to say non-narrative because there is a plot, but it takes its time. And it, the power that it generates is more ruminative. It's more uh, the collection of the shots and the things that happen that are meaningful and less, it's less talky, but it's brilliant in terms of these shots and these construction of these frames that he uses. And also in, in blow up Hemmings like Travolta would do, uh, you know, almost 20 years later in, in blow out, he also recreates what he didn't see. He makes a facsimile of what happened by, in essence, blowing up the photographs and and tacking them up. And in doing so, the truth becomes both clearer and also harder to discern. And like Travolta's character, he is carefree throughout the first half of the film and then takes this kind of manic, obsessed turn. And another thing that's different about blow up than blow out is there's, to my ear, no score used in Blow Up that isn't music that the characters are listening to, or as we pretentiously say, non-diegetic film music use in Blow Up. So Blow Up is the film that came first, and, and De Palma is obviously influenced by that. And the other film that gets mentioned a lot, of course, is Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Now, I have to say, I watched all three of these films during my convalescence. And, you know, the conversation is one of those films that you're supposed to think is brilliant. And you probably do think is brilliant. But I got to say, when I watched all three of these films, uh, the two that resonated the most, number one, was was Blowout. First of all, I thought it had so much depth and interesting things going on in the filmmaking and also all of the meta layers of stuff. So I I really plugged into that. It's got Travolta, such a great performance. Uh, Really should be considered one of Travolta's greatest film roles. You have an amazing score that's all over the place. Uh, So I really connected with that. And the second movie I really connected with was Blow Up, which I'd never seen before. And even though it's very, very swinging 60s, It's also, like Blowout, um, kind of jaded about its own time in an impressive way. It's kind of looking askance at this this movement of swinging 60s London and kind of calling it for the bullshit that it is and the people that populate it. And, And Blowout does that too. But man, the conversation, for all the legend of the conversation, it's slow going. And, and unfortunately, I think that starts with just this, this concept of the character as played by Gene Hackman is such a downer. And it doesn't give you any of the in that David Hemmings does or John Travolta does. So the conversation is, uh, I have to put it in the same category as uh, when I rewatched Apocalypse Now, another film that you're supposed to think is brilliant and is uncriticized for for any of its flaws, um, I found it as surprising to realize I'd have to put that in that same category as I am surprised to find myself becoming more of a De Palma guy. The conversation is just very meandering and Francis Ford Coppola wrote it and directed it. I'm not sure if that's part of the problem. You know, I'd have to do a deeper dive to look at films that he wrote from not from a source material like The Godfather where he had the roadmap of the book in order to extrapolate into a screenplay. But he wrote the conversation himself, presumably from an idea that he had. And as a paranoia thriller, it doesn't really stand up to any of those other movies that I mentioned, all of which I think are better. Paculus Paranoia Trilogy, 
um, certainly blow up, blow out. Um, I would put the conversation far down on that list. You know, it's maybe there's a part of it that's eluding me, but I think if you watch it again and if you watch it in concert with blowout, you will probably feel the same. I don't know. It just, it really did not hold together. It took me a few times to get through it. That's how long I felt the conversation played. So that's a little bit just about blowout. Um, Probably a bit meandering because my brain probably isn't functioning perfectly well yet, but I wanted to sit down and talk about all this stuff because I was really jazzed by it. It really got me going. And I'm looking forward to investigating a couple other De Palma films. And I hope you do too. I hope you check it out. And if you do get the Criterion disc, it's well worth it. It's always worth it to revisit a film like this. Pay particular attention to things like Travolta, the Pino DiNaggio score, who scored lots of De Palma films. He also did the score for Carrie, Dress to Kill, Body Double. Excellent score in in Blowout. It has all different types of music. Uh, And watch Blow Up and watch the conversation and let me know what you think. That's it for this week's episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thank you as ever for listening.